If you have a Bible, Exodus 32 and 33 is where we're gonna be this morning. You know, I, I don't know what your, your holiday season was like. I'm sure, like all of us, it was probably different than it's been uh, in years past. And you know, for Sydney and I and our boys, uh, in a lot of ways, it was just a really kind of slow and, and quiet holiday season, and, and we experienced just a lot of fun things kind of in the midst of that. One of my favorite parts of, of the holidays were a couple of days that we had between Christmas and New Year's where our family didn't have anywhere to go. We didn't have to travel anywhere. We didn't have anywhere to be. We didn't have anything to do. And so just kind of morning after morning, we'd wake up. We'd kind of sleep a little bit later. You know, when you have kids, sleeping late is pretty relative. You know, we'd wake up at 7, you know, instead of 6 or whatever. But we'd, we'd sleep in just a little bit. We'd, we'd eat breakfast. We, the kids would play with their Christmas gifts. We would, we would hang out. We'd talk and just enjoy time as a family. So we did this like several days in a row. And uh, after two or three days of that, you know, I was grateful for the slowness, but I woke up one morning and I was just kind of fidgety. I don't know if you ever experienced that when things slow down. I'm like, I got to do something. And so I thought, man, I'm going to fix everything in our house that's been broken for far too long. And I just got this like spirit of just like, I'm going to get some stuff done. And which probably scared Sydney because I have this long track record of when I'm going to fix something, it means that we're going to have to pay somebody else to come actually fix it. <laughs> like I'm going to break it. I'm going to make it worse, you know, but I thought, man, God, by your help, I can do this. And so I don't know if you ever had one of those moments where you're just going to fix everything in your house, that that wiggly faucet that's been wiggly since you moved into the house, the toilet that keeps running, that spot in the drywall that needs to be repaired, whatever it is. So I just woke up with this tenacity. I'm going to get this stuff done. And as I was kind of repairing our house uh, throughout the day, one of the things that was just kind of welling up in me was the joy that comes when you get to fix something. And uh, literally, as I was, I was working on our house, it, it just made me realize some of the angst that I felt over the course of the last 10 or 11 months in the midst of 2020. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of person that hates to see something broken and have the inability to, to fix it. Like, you know, I don't want to walk past something in my house that's broken and not fix it. Uh, I don't want to see something that's broken in one of my relationships and not fix it. I don't want to see something that's broken in our nation and not be able— uh, to fix it or in our church, what, whatever it is. Like one of the things that I know about myself is, is when something's broken, I, I want to fix it. Uh, I don't want to disengage from it. I don't want to outsource the repair to somebody else. I, I, I don't want to pretend that it's all okay. Like I want to get in and fix it. But one of the challenges for me in the midst of 2020 was on a daily or at least weekly basis, I was being reminded of, man, there's some stuff going on in the world that is beyond my ability to fix it. Some of the anger the hatred, the racism, the vitriol that's coming out in our speech, the things that we're saying and doing, sometimes in the name of Jesus to one another, to the nation. I've seen it, and there's just been this like stirring up in me where I go, God, like, what do I do about this? And, and that, that angst in me, you know, of, man, God, I don't know how to fix this. That's kind of how the last years felt to me. I don't know if you felt that at all. And so there's been, been moments when I've been almost depressed by my inability to fix it or where I, the only thing I've known how to do is I'm just going to disengage a little bit. Or there's been moments, maybe even worse yet, where I've kind of taken the energy of the world and the energy of the kingdom of darkness and thought, I mean, can I use that energy to bring about something good? I don't know where you find yourself in the midst of all this, but as I was sitting there trying to fix the faucet in our bathroom, I went, man, it feels nice to be able to fix something when everything else in the world seems broken and I can't do anything about it. And there's times when, as followers of Jesus, we see what's going on in the world and, and we go, man, like, like what, what's our job? What's our role? And I've been feeling this. And, and then we came to Wednesday of this week, and I don't know where you were when all of the, the, the insanity 
when all of the pain, when all the brokenness, when all the sinfulness began to just uncoil itself in our nation's capital. But, you know, Wednesday started out really good for me. It was a beautiful day. Our church was praying together that day. Hopefully you were part of that. On At noon, we got online together. We got to pray. It was a beautiful time. And then I went to hang out with a friend of mine for a little bit. And for about an hour and a half, I was in this bubble of bliss. You know, I had, I had no idea what was going on in the outside world. It was, it was sunny. It was beautiful. He and I were just like locked into this really wonderful conversation together. And the moment that was done, uh, I'm headed back and I get a call from one of my friends. And he begins to let me in on what had been going on in the nation. I remember getting back and just seeing the images seeing what was unfolding, seeing the way that people were speaking, seeing the, the, the words that was being used, seeing, seeing the anarchy and the violence and the chaos, and then seeing banners with the name of Jesus plastered up in the midst of all of it. And I don't know what you're feeling in your heart, but man, my heart was just like turned over. I go, I go God, like, like, what do we do? Like, like, what's, like, what's the response to the church? Like, how do we live as, as the friends of Jesus in the midst of the insanity we find ourselves in? And there were two passages of Scripture that just jumped to my heart in the midst of it. You know, one was Psalm 11, verse 3, where, where David says, Lord, when the foundations are being destroyed, what are the righteous people of God supposed to do about it? Like, when the nation's crumbling, when things are falling apart, what are the people of God supposed to do? So that's one Scripture that popped to my heart as I was seeing the the chaos of the things that were happening in the nation and seeing the name of Jesus peppered in there. But there's another passage of scripture, Matthew chapter five, where Jesus is sitting on the side of a hill and he's talking to his friends, none of whom held any power or prestige or authority, at least through the eyes of their culture. And Jesus looks out at him and he says, when darkness is overrunning a nation, you're the light of the world. When the culture is decaying, you're the salt of the earth. You're the preservative. You're the, you're the, you're the one that by the power and the spirit of God has something to do about it. And I found myself over the last several days, maybe like many of you, living in the tension. Like on one side was the despair of Psalm 11, verse three, Lord, what do the righteous do when things are falling apart? But on the other side is just this promise, this sense of destiny from Jesus that, hey, in the midst of this, I've called you friends. I've filled you with the power of the Holy Spirit, and I wanna use you. I wanna use you to be agents of light and transformation in the midst of everything that we're seeing. And so over the next couple of weeks, as, as we get ready for this season of prayer and fasting with our city and with our nation, uh, we're gonna look at three distinct moments from Scripture where uh, a, a man or woman of God found themselves in a place where their nation was shaking. And they had to wrestle with what it meant to be a friend of Jesus, not just with Jesus, not with just with each other, but on behalf of the nation to which they'd been sent. Like, what does it look like to be a friend of Jesus in the midst of that? And this morning, we're going to look at the story uh, in the life of Moses from Exodus chapter 32 and 33. And I'm going to give you just a little bit of the cliff notes, the background. We could, we could dive really deep into this, but I want to make sure you understand kind of the context of the story that we're looking at this morning. Uh, if, if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, it starts out with the people of God. They had been oppressed in slavery in Egypt for more than 400 years. It's a really dire, difficult situation. And it's in the midst of that God raises up this unlikely leader, a guy named Moses. And God says, Moses, I want to use you as a conduit. I'm going to use you as a conduit of my blessing into the nation. I'm going to use you to help release my people from oppression. I'm going to use you to lead my people through the wilderness. I'm going to use you to help restore their God-given intended dignity and destiny into their life. 
God says, I want, I want to use you to remind them of who they've been made to be. And so you read the story of the Exodus. It's, it's filled with these miraculous moments where God uh, brings them out of their oppression. He leads them through the wilderness. He sustains them when they don't have food to eat and water to drink. He shows them where to go when they don't know what to do. And there's kind of this uh, almost climactic moment in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 where the people of God are standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. Guys, this is not a, a myth, a fable, a fairy tale. It's a real historical moment where, where, where the, the Jewish people are standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God doesn't just reveal himself to Moses. He reveals himself to the entire nation at one time. It's an amazing moment in the scriptures. And if you're like me, I read that and I go, man, if you were to have an encounter with God like that, how could you ever go back to the way that you used to live? But you and I know enough, whether you've read the scriptures or not, we know enough about human nature to know that when it comes to the power of an encounter with God, our spiritual amnesia sometimes seems stronger than the things that God has done. And we forget so easily. And so uh, the Israelites, they've been on this, this moment. I don't know if you know the timeline of the book of Exodus, but from the moment they leave Egypt in Exodus 14 to the moment they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, four months goes by. So we're not talking 40 years, not talking 400 years, we're talking four months from April to July, and in the course of four months, they forget the destiny that God has called them into. They forget the miraculous that God had done in their midst of when Moses goes back up on the mountain to receive clarity about what's next. The people turn back to the gods of their past. And the story in Exodus chapter 32 is this, this moment, in so, so many ways, it's kind of a paradigmatic moment of what happens when human beings forget for a moment what it is that God has done. And we turn back to the gods of our past. It says they, they come to Aaron and they say, Aaron, we want you to make a golden calf, which to us seems outrageous. But they had seen the people in Egypt worship a golden calf. And they went, man, when we're in, a, in the desert of uncertainty, when we're in the desert of, of, of pain and frustration, we're gonna turn back to the gods that we remember, even though the gods that we remember can't do anything to get us out of the thing that we're in. I just wanna give us a word of encouragement real quick. You know, I think sometimes, it's easy to read the scriptures and to go, man, how could they have done that? But I go, if, if ever there was a moment for us to remember just how easy it is for human beings to turn back to the gods of the past, 2020 was the year that reminded us of that. You know, for some of you, in, in your year of frustration, in your year of disappointment, you return to the gods of your past, to those addictions, to those areas of control, to those areas of trying to sustain yourself or to make yourself, or whatever it is. It's our tendency as human beings to forget. And so they, they forget the Lord in Exodus chapter 32, and there's this moment where God begins to judge the nation. And, and I want you to notice this. This is really uncomfortable. But you need to go home, to, or you're at home. Like sometime today, when you're at home, read through Exodus 32 and 33, and I want you to notice the way that God begins to judge the nation. Uh, he, he deals with some of their leaders. He has 3,000 of their leaders put to death. He sends a plague through the nation, and then maybe the most difficult judgment that he gives them, he looks at Moses and he says, hey, listen, I'm gonna give you the promised land. I'm gonna even send an angel to protect you, but I'm gonna withdraw my presence from you, which I think is the, the harshest of all the judgments that God gives the people there in Exodus 32 and 33. It's the definition of hell itself is the absence of God. And God looks at this nation who for four months had experienced his kindness, his provision, his presence, his leading in a moment of fleeting fear and distraction. They turn from the Lord and the Lord says, okay, this is it. 
I'm going to judge you for this, and I'm going to withdraw my presence. It's kind of that Romans chapter 1, first judgment upon the nation. And let's just name it what it is. Um, we, we don't typically talk about God judging nations because we like to think about God dealing with us as individuals. But guys, I'm just telling you, when you read the scriptures, God, he deals with nations. And I'm just telling you guys, we are in a moment where we are experiencing God dealing with our nation right now. He's dealing with us. And I'm not, I'm not don't read between lines. I'm just saying we are experiencing the judgment of God in a variety of ways on our nation, like right here and right now. And the question is, as the friends of Jesus, as the friends of God, like, like what is our responsibility? When we see the nation turning in on itself, when we see the foundation shaking, do we put our head in the sand? Do we run from it? Do we grow cynical, filled with despair? Do we use fire to fight fire? Do we, uh, do, we do these things or do we live differently? I love the glimpse that we get of, of Moses, this man of God, this friend of God, in a moment when his nation is on the edge of destruction. I want you to notice the way that he responds. We're gonna pick up in Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 30. And I just want you to, to, to read along with me, uh, first couple of verses. It says, the next day Moses said to the people, he says, you have committed a great sin. He says, but now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and he said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. I don't know if you take notes or not, but if you do, the first thing that I want you to notice as friends of God, as friends of God, we're called to live with clarity. We're called to live with clarity about what it is that's actually bringing about all of the pain and the destruction we see in our nation right now. We're called to live with clarity. It doesn't matter what political side of the aisle you find yourself on. As followers of Jesus, as friends of Jesus, filled with the spirit of Jesus, we are called to live with absolute clarity about what is it that's the source of all of the pain, destruction, anarchy, violence, hatred that we see pouring out in our nation right now. I love this moment because Moses, he, he looks at the situation and he doesn't blame the moment on their circumstances. He doesn't blame it on the hardship they experienced in Egypt. He doesn't blame it on their political system. He doesn't blame it on their lack of leadership. He doesn't say, hey, now that those 3,000 leaders have been done away with, we're in good shape, we're gonna vote some new people in. He understands that if he misdiagnoses the root of the problem, the solution he comes up with will always be wrong. Guys, one of the things that I'm, I'm fearful of in this season is that followers of Jesus We'll look at our circumstances and we'll never really stop long enough by the power of the Spirit of God to understand the source of what's leading to the circumstances that we're in. And I love this, Moses stands up filled with the Spirit of God and he speaks in truth. He says, what's going on here, what we're seeing in our circumstances is the result of this invisible disease that has invaded every human heart, that has invaded every human system, that has, inv that has invaded every human empire. He says, what we have here is a sin issue. And I think sometimes as American Christians, we think of sin as this personal, private thing. In the scriptures, sin is not just personal and private. Sin is national, it is communal. And guys, I'm just telling you, what we are seeing in our nation is the result of sin, not just over, overrunning certain human hearts. We're seeing the reality of sin just overwhelming, just coming to the surface. We're seeing it in our political systems. And as followers of Jesus, it should be so easy for us to speak clearly about the reality of hearts that have turned themselves against God. 
When we see violence, it's like all violence is sin, doesn't matter who's doing it. When we see racism, all racism is sin, doesn't matter who it's coming from. When we see acts of um, speech and, and hatred, when we see anarchy, when we see all of these things, and especially when we see the name of Jesus being put above it as followers of Jesus and the friends of Jesus, we just stand up and say, no, this is not right. And with clarity, with clarity, Moses, he looked at what was going on and he didn't blame it on their external conditions, on their circumstances. He says, what we have here is a problem in the human heart. What we know and what we should all know is that, that the human heart is an idle factory. We all look for ways to control and to understand the chaos we find ourselves in. And for us to look within ourselves and for us to look within our community and to go, what we're experiencing right now ultimately is what happens when a human heart has not been redeemed by Jesus. The chaos we're experiencing in our nation is what happens when one side is scared of losing power or when the other side is excited about gaining power. <laughs> Of all the people on, on the earth, followers of Jesus, friends of Jesus should have the most clarity about the moment we're in. And the moment we're in is a moment that is being defined by what happens when sin has its way. Moses looks at his nation and he knows there's systems to address. He's no, he knows there's leadership issues to fix. But what he knows is that unless someone greater than himself comes in and atones for the sin that is running rampant in the nation, he knows that no, not a new leader, not a new system, not a new anything will fix what they're seeing. And so as followers of Jesus, as friends of Jesus, what do we do in a moment of chaos? Guys, we live with the sense of clarity about what it is that's causing the mess we're in in the first place. But it's not just that we live with clarity. Keep reading, look at verse 32. He says, now, he says, please forgive their sin. But if not, if you're not gonna for forgive their sin, then blot me out of this book that you've written. I love this, this moment, Moses, this friend of God, he doesn't just have clarity about what's going on all around him. That clarity moves him to this place of deep compassion. Outside of the life of Jesus, I would argue there's not a moment in the scriptures where you see a clearer picture of gospel compassion than what you see right here in the life of Moses. You know, Moses, he had not signed up for this job. It's not like he went to, to school and then grad school and then got a PhD to figure out how to lead a people out of oppression. You know, he didn't beg God, hey, God, would you use me to do great things? Like Moses was minding his own business. God said, I've got an assignment for you. And the assignment that God gave Moses was such a difficult assignment. God used Moses to bring the people out of their oppression. And they fought Moses every step of the way. They complained. They wanted to have him killed. I mean, it was just this terrible situation they found themselves in. And Moses looked at the, the scenario and he had clarity about what was going on. He saw, he saw sin in the camp. He, he saw hatred in the camp. He saw violence in the camp. He saw all of these things. But his clarity about the moment did not lead him to a place of cynicism or bitterness or hatred or anger. It drove him to a place of compassion. I'm just telling you, if I would have been in Moses' shoes and God said, hey, Moses, here's the deal. These people are jacked up. I'm going to get rid of all of them. It's you and me. We're starting over. I'm like, bring it on, God. Burn this mother down. Like, do whatever you've got to do. Like, Lord, I want you to come and to move. But look how Moses prays. Like, like, look at what Moses says. Moses says, God, please forgive them. Have compassion on them. And if your only way uh, of redeeming them is to, to blot me out, to take me out of my place in heaven, then God, blot me out so they can be written in. 
Guys, can you imagine? Can you imagine the witness this would be for the world? If instead of just having clarity about what's going on, like we hit our knees with compassion, that when we saw violence and anarchy and racism and sin and all these, yes, we stand for truth. Yes, we stand for justice. Yes, we name it. Yes, we call sin, sin. But we have compassion for the sinner. This is one of the things that makes us so different. In theory, this is what should make us different, is that we don't just have clarity, but we, in the midst of that clarity, we have compassion. We long for the salvation of the ones that are bringing about hardship and destruction and pain and sin that are bringing the nation to the moment that it's in. You know, a few weeks ago, I was hanging out with a good friend of mine whose son has been trapped in this cycle of drug addiction for about a decade now. His son has been in and out of rehab. His son has been in and out of their house, in and off the streets. He's stolen from their family, hurt their family, um, betrayed their family, done all sorts of things. And I'm talking to my, my friend about this. I said, I said, how do you continue to have sustained compassion for your son when he continues to sin against you like this? And my friend's eyes just filled up with tears. And he says, because I understand. He says, my son's made a lot of bad choices. He says, but at the end of the day, I understand my son is a prisoner of war. And it doesn't mean he's not responsible, he says, but he says, I have to remember who the real enemy is. He says, the enemy, the devil, has been preying on my son's life, trying to destroy my son's life, trying to destroy our family. And he says, although I'm angry about my son's choices, although I'm angry about the things that he's doing, my friend has clarity about his son's behavior, but part of his clarity leads him to a place of compassion. And so even when he's filled with righteous indignation towards the way his son is behaving, he understands his son is a prisoner of war and it moves him to this place of compassion. Lord, save him. Guys, I just want to ask you a very simple question. When you see sin running rampant in someone who finds himself on the, dip, on the other side of the aisle from you, whether you find yourself on one side of the political aisle or the other, when you see sin rampant in somebody else's life, do you feel compassion for them or do you feel hatred and content? Do you feel contempt for them? See guys, part of what marks us as the friends of God is the love of God that came to me, Dave Clayton, when I was an enemy of God, when I was acting like a fool, the love of God that overwhelmed my life begins to flood through our hearts, begins to pump through our veins. And when we see unredeemed people acting like unredeemed people, instead of just clarifying and going, well, that's sin, we're moved by compassion for the sinner. For God so loved the what? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for that broken, sin-filled, hate-filled, violent mess of a world. He, he gave his son for you, for me, for every bit of mess. And I, I love this. What do the friends of God do? How do the friends of God respond when the foundations are, are being shaken? Listen, we have clarity, the courage that we need to call sin, sin. We have compassion for those who are caught in sin. And if you take notes, last but not least, we are moved by that clarity. We are moved by that compassion to contend for the nation to which God has sent us. We contend for the nation. In other words, we pray without ceasing. This is not because we think our nation is better than any other nation. This is not nationalism. This is not the posture of a nationalist. This is the posture of a missionary. This is a, this is a posture of someone who understands that, 
that you were born here or you moved here or you were sent here by God himself to help long for, to pray for, to work towards the redemption of the people that God has sent you. I love this, this moment. You get into Exodus 33 and, and Moses, he's contending here for the people of God. Look at verse 14. The Lord replies to him. He says, Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But Moses said to him, no, if your presence does not go with us, like communally, with our nation, then do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? You know, Moses knew that the mark of favor upon a nation was not just that they had peace, was not just that they had prosperity. He knew that the ultimate mark of favor was in the presence of God himself, being with a group of people. And he, said, he says, God, he says, I'm, I'm gonna contend that despite all of our sin, despite all of our violence, despite all of our racism, despite all of our anarchy, despite all of the things that we've done, would you forgive us, would you redeem us? And not just would you forgive us and redeem us, but would you dwell with us? Would your presence not be withdrawn from the nation? He contends, he longs, God, please. Guys, there's been so many moments over the last year where I've found myself just at a loss. Like, like, how do I pray for the nation? I don't know if you felt that. Maybe you've never prayed for the nation. But man, I try to pray, I'm like, God, you've sent us here to, to, to be a part of the redemption of this nation. And I'm like, God, I don't even know how to pray. I'm like, God, do we need a, another flood? Like, do you need to start over? Like, like God, do you, do you need to bring judgment? Is it mercy? Like, like, Lord, how do I even pray? And there's been moments where I just find myself sitting at a loss of, at a loss of words and just hanging on to that promise from Romans chapter eight where God says, when you don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit inside of you will pray what needs to be prayed. And so there's some days where I'm just like, Lord, I don't know what to pray for our nation. Whatever you want to happen here, let it be so. There's other days where I prayed these words out of Exodus 33, Lord, would you forgive us? Would you do whatever it takes to forgive us? And would you, would you restore your presence, your presence, God, to, to the people of this nation? Like, don't, don't withdraw your presence. There's times I don't know what to pray. I pray the scriptures for the nation. I love Moses has this clarity about what's the cause of all the problem they're seeing. He has this compassion for the ones that are bringing about the problems that they're seeing. And he begins to contend, Lord, hey, Lord, don't remove your presence. And I love, I love verse 17. Look at this. This is the last verse we'll look at this morning. The Lord said to Moses, he said, Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked. Why? Because I'm pleased with you and because I know you by name. Earlier on in verse 11, God refers to Moses as his friend. It's not that Moses called God his friend, it's that, it's that God called Moses his friend. And there's this moment here in, in Exodus 33, verse 17, where, where God very clearly says to Moses, he says, hey, hey buddy, your friendship with me is gonna shift the future of this nation that you live in that's turned itself away from me. Your friendship with me will change the future of the nation that is shaking that is turned away from me, that is acting in a way that happens when the heart's been captured by sin. Moses, I know you can't fix this. I know that you don't know what to do here, but man, I just, I just see. I see you, my friend. And because of my friendship with you, I'm gonna do what you've asked. I, I love what Hebrews chapter three says, is that 
at the end of the day, as great as Moses was, Moses was just the foretaste of the greater one that was gonna come, that Jesus in every way was better than Moses. Where we see clarity in Moses' vision, Jesus had greater clarity. Where we see compassion in Moses' life, Jesus had greater compassion. He didn't just offer to be blotted out for the sins of people. Jesus was blotted out for the sins of all humanity. When they're crucifying him, Jesus, he prays, hey God, they don't have any idea what they're, what they're doing, forgive them. He looks at the, the thieves on either side of him on the cross who are mocking him, and he offers them salvation. Like the more the life of Jesus was crushed and pressed, the sweetness of God just flowed more freely. Wherever there is compassion in Moses, you see more compassion in Jesus. And wherever you see a man that would contend for a nation in the life of Moses, you see even more so in Jesus. I love in Hebrews chapter nine, it says that Jesus lives to forever intercede for his people. Guys, I don't know what Jesus is, is praying about this morning specifically, but I know he's praying for you. I know he's praying for his church. I know that he's praying that the sons and daughters of God would be revealed in the moment that we find ourselves in. As we come into this new year, and let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room, the reality is that although we're in a new year, it feels like the same old, same old, doesn't it? And my prayer in the midst of all of the sin and in all of the shaking is that you would not become cynical, that you would not become embittered, that you would not become disillusioned, that you would not use fire to fight fire, that you wouldn't bury your head in the sand or outsource redemption to anybody else, but that you would rise up as sons of daughters of God, that you would rise up as the friends of Jesus and that you would believe in the depth of your heart that your friendship with the Lord has the ability to change the future for the people around you. Maybe it'll be a family member, maybe it'll be that group of coworkers, maybe it'll be the friends in your at-home gathering, or maybe, just maybe, God wants to respond to your prayers this morning on behalf of the nation that is turning in on itself. And so as we live in the tension, the hopelessness of Psalm 11, Lord, when the foundation is shaking, what do the people of God do? And the promise of Matthew chapter five, that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, a city on a hill that can't be hidden. When you find yourself living in that tension as a friend of God, may we live with clarity, may we be moved in compassion, and may we never quit contending for the nation that God has called us to. You know, this, this morning for some of you, uh, you've never been made right with God. You are steeped in the brokenness of a heart that's never been changed by Jesus, and this is your morning as we come into a new year. This is your morning to fall on your knees, to cry out to Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you wanna have all of your sins forgiven, if you wanna be made right with God, if you wanna be filled with the Holy Spirit, we would love to help you do that today. You can send us a quick email, share at ethoschurch.org. You can leave a message in the live chat. Someone from our pastoral team would love to get with you. Yeah, because we believe the hope of the future, our hearts being made right with God first and foremost. Some of you, that's your first step. You know, for some of you in the midst of this past year that caught all of us off guard, maybe you're already saved, but in the midst of the last year, you've turned back to the gods of your past. You've turned back to old addictions, old habits, old substances, old ways in an effort to control the uncontrollable. And you don't need to be resaved, but you do need to come home to God. You need to repent. And my prayer for you this morning as we break the communion bread, as we take the cup, for you to be reminded that in this ongoing work of coming around the, the death, burial, resurrection, and return of Jesus, that you'd be reminded you still have a place in the family of God. And this is not the year for you to run in your old ways or to bury your head in the sand or to ignore what God's doing, but for you to rise up as a friend of Jesus. And for those of you that are friends of Jesus, may we live with clarity this week. 
May we be marked with heavenly compassion this week. And may we contend for God to move in our nation this week. You know, we're starting our month of prayer and fasting in a few weeks, but no need to wait. You can start right now. Let's start praying. Let's start asking God to move. We don't believe prayer is all we do, but we believe prayer is where we start. And we're not scared to say that. We're not scared to believe that. So I want to pray for us this morning. We're going to sing another song or two of worship. And I just want to encourage you as we're worshiping to just reflect on what it is that God's doing right now, what he's calling you to do. And then we're going to end our time together in communion. Father. I love you, and I love this church family that we get to be a part of. Um, Lord, in the name of Jesus, would you help us deal with any of the sin that is running rampant in our own hearts? God, would you deal with any of the areas where we don't have compassion or where we have quit contending? And God, would you raise up in us uh, a spirit of friendship with God that, that would change the future of the people that we've been called to reach, Lord? Lord, use us in word and in deed. Use us on our knees as we pray and use us as we stand up and move forward in action. God, give us wisdom in the midst of all of it. We love you, King Jesus. We thank you for who you are and what you're doing. And together we say, 